Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, July 12, 2017. Get ready for the first lecture from the PCR Australia Abandoned Conference. Designed to lay some historical groundwork. Details forthwith. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you to slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare. Compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there, and we take the time to open up God's Word to compare and contrast what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles and apostolettes, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to, whose books apparently we need to be buying, and whose small group curricula we need to be studying instead of the Word of God. Yeah, weird how that works, isn't it? And over and again, we demonstrate that the steady diet of doctrine being fed to evangelicals is far from biblical. It's as mythological and man-made as prayers to the saints, uh, prayers to the Virgin Mary, indulgences, purgatory, and you name the doctrine. You get the idea? So much of what's being taught today to evangelicals is as man-made as that. Yeah, no joke. In fact, that's kind of where we need to start off with. Now, I told you that uh, with the Australia PCR conference, all of the audio will be available gratis for free. And uh, and so this is our gift uh, to uh, y'all and to the people of Australia who participated and came to the event. Uh, it's it's basically you know our our way of giving back. And so our first lecture, which will be what we're going to listen to today. Today is our Wednesday. It's the day we do our light episode. The uh, first lecture to lead us off, because the theme was abandon. Has evangelicalism abandoned the Reformation? That's kind of the question on the table, but you can't really do the answer the question. You know, has they, has has it abandoned the Reformation without understanding something of the history of the Reformation? And so I called upon my friend and colleague, Pastor Joel Klein of Wangaratta Lutheran Parish in Wangaratta, 
uh, Australia, and uh, and so he got to do come a little bit more of the uh, the anchoring work that needed to be done so that we can properly answer the question. And his first lecture, which is what we'll be listening to today, which led off the conference, is titled "Here I Stood." Here I stood. He'll give a brief overview. Not well, it is brief. It's a very high level overview of the Reformation itself. And important to note this, the slides that he's referring to will be available at fightingforthefaith.com with today's episode. You'll be able to download them as a PDF uh, once the podcast is posted. So if you'd like to see the maps and the things that he's referring to, you can do that by going to fightingforthefaith.com. And uh, and so that's kind of the setup. He's going to set the table for us and then on Friday, Friday's episode of Fighting for the Faith, I'm going to actually play uh, one of the lectures I delivered. I can't remember if it's the first or second lecture. I, I do know it was a day one lecture. And the uh, the lecture is on, no joke, um, God did not create you with a purpose. Now, I know I've been kind of trying to build up your anticipation for that. That will be the second half of Friday's episode of Fighting for the Faith, probably one of the more important lectures I've delivered in a while. And so that's one of the reasons why I'm kind of highlighting. I think you all need to hear that and you know pay attention to it coming up. Uh, in the podcast feed. But without any further ado, here is Pastor Joel Klein, Wangaretta Lutheran Parish, uh, day one, lecture one of uh, the PCR conference in Sydney, Australia, on the theme of abandon, but the name of his lecture is Here I Stood. Here we go. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you all. It's a a wonderful privilege to be with you this morning, and uh, I'm uh, quite honored uh, to be speaking this morning. Firstly, to be here in Sydney at an Anglican church, the Sydney Anglicans have a a very large uh, place in my heart. My mother is the secretary of the Diocese of Northwestern Australia, so I've known a number of Sydney Anglican bishops over the years and uh, quite uh, enjoy their presence and have done over the years. The other privilege is to be out of the cold in Wangaratta. It's minus four this morning and uh, the frost is quite thick on the ground. And uh, then also I'm greatly privileged to be heading uh, into the fray the first time round this morning, being the opening speaker. It's like being the opener at a comedy festival or at a, at a gig. Uh, you're not expecting too much of me, so uh, I can go ahead. <laughs> now I'm working this out. So yeah, this morning's lecture may well be a, a little bit dry and it, uh, it may be a little bit... Uh, heavy on the facts, uh, but it will lead in and you'll see how it develops and leads into tomorrow's uh, lecture first thing in the morning as we consider the church post-World War II. So I will read from Romans chapter 1 and then we'll pray before we begin. St. Paul by the Holy Spirit says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So let's pray. God our Father, you are everlasting, you are begotten, not made, with the Son and the Spirit. You have given to your church all gifts of grace and mercy. You have given to us your holy word by which your Spirit calls us into the true faith. We pray, Lord, then, as we contemplate your truths, that you would sanctify our hearts, 
cause us to have a deeper acknowledgement of who you are and what your work is in this world so that we would in all our ways submit to your will and your authority through your word. We pray also that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be acceptable to you, Lord Father, through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. Amen. All right. So here I stood is the title I've, I've selected for this morning. You know the famous words of Martin Luther. At the Diet of Worms, of course, he made that statement, here I stand, I can do no other. And indeed he did stand, and yet uh, we know that all through history there were others who stood in the very same way. So consider this text from Ecclesiastes then, chapter 1, verses 9 to 11. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. And what a poignant text that is for us as we go into this subject of the abandonment of the Reformation, and especially as we consider the... I'd say development, but the divergence of the church after World War II and how far we have been removed from the source of faith that is God's Word. How the subjective truth that every individual has has now overcome the objective truth and the objective revelation of God through His Holy Word. There is certainly nothing new under the sun. And you'll see some very, very distinct correlations as we look at the history of the 16th century Reformation with what has in fact taken place in the last uh, 50 to 100 years. But first let's consider some terms. Heterodox, heresy, apostasy. They're good words, aren't they? You can bank those words. But they are important words for us to recognize and they're going to probably come up again and again. So the first word we see there is the word heterodox and I must get my laptop because it's got my notes on it. So heterodox is a term that uh, defines for us the, uh, the reality that for many people moving away from God's word is a matter of heterodoxy. There are individuals who will move away from the truth of God's word in a way that doesn't necessarily remove them from the faith. It's not outright heresy, as we see in the term to come, but heterodoxy is a move away from what is orthodox, what is truly good, what is the best practice. And so uh, heterodoxy affects practice in the church, but it also affects understanding. And most often you will see in your average layperson many and varied heterodox ideas about God's truth. And this for them won't separate them from the true faith, and yet Heterodoxy needs to be discussed, and it can be righted. That's the beauty of addressing heterodoxy and understanding what it is. Because it's a simple divergence, we are able to address it, and this is what we're encouraged to do all through Scripture, to be always prepared to give an account of the faith that is within us, and so address heterodoxy. Heresy is a different matter. Heresy is not a move away from from, uh, orthodoxy, but heresy is a rejection of orthodoxy. It is a rejection of the fullness of the revelation of God. Now, we can put these two terms in a very simple way. When someone comes and says, I made Jesus my Lord and Saviour, or I decided to follow Jesus, for many people, 
you'll be able to simply say, what do you mean by that? And they say, well, I heard the word, someone told me about Jesus and I heard the gospel and therefore I decided that I'm going to follow this gospel. Now their understanding and what they've said is heterodox, that they made a decision to follow Jesus. But it's very simple to unpack that and say, okay, now I hear what you're saying that you have made a decision to follow Jesus, but did you notice that you also said that you had heard the word? Did you notice that you had had someone speak to you the gospel? Did you notice that there was something else active that called you to the true faith? And then they can come to an orthodox understanding that they didn't in fact make a decision to follow Jesus, but they have no better terms in which to put it. Rather, according to the scriptures and according to the Luther's small catechism, they were called by the Holy Spirit through the gospel, enlightened by the word and made uh, true believers in the one true faith. This is a simple way of explaining the difference between heterodoxy and heresy. Now, you take that same example, I decided to follow Jesus, and you get someone who is actually given over to decision theology, and you'll have a heresy. No, I made a decision. I invited Jesus, and this is what the Scriptures say, that we must open the door for him, that we have a God-shaped hole in our hearts, and we must invite him in to fill that hole. And, of course, that is a heresy, because we know that we cannot, by our own reason or understanding, come to know Christ our Lord, but we must be called by the gospel. And that's very clear in Romans 10. But I would like to, I just want to put a nail in this one very quickly. So let's consider 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 7. We'll start at verse 5. And David and all the house of Israel were making merry before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps, and tambourines, and castanets, and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah, or Uzzah, put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. Here you see very clearly the righteousness of God displayed. Righteousness is a word that means the absence, the very absence of sin and guilt. It means perfection. God in his nature is righteous. We in our natures are not. We are born dead in trespasses and sins. Therefore Uzzah, who accidentally touched the presence of God while he was unrighteous, was destroyed by the righteousness of God. Because righteousness cannot be in contact with unrighteousness. And so that puts paid to decision theology. Apostasy then is the next term that we will look at. Apostasy means deliberate deliberate and complete removal of the Christian faith from the teaching and practice of an individual or a group. So to be apostate means that you don't believe that there is a Trinitarian God that you have perhaps become an Arian or an anti-Trinitarian, that that Christ is subordinate to the Father and the Spirit is subordinate to the Son and so on and so forth, that there is not one God but there are three uh, with different uh, roles or modalism, all these other ideas, these are apostate teachings. They remove Christianity completely from the picture. So they're not false teaching, they're not even Christian. Gone completely. So that's just a quick overview of the terms. Now, as we 
go towards now our treatment of the Reformation and its history, let's consider this map. Now, I'm going to leave this map up for a while, and I'm going to take this mic and walk over to it. Now you can see, and I'm going to refer to the Ottoman Empire and I'm going to refer to the Holy Roman Empire and I've got another map where I'll refer to the different Christian groups that came out of the Reformation uh, and that's following this one. But this gives you a good, good pictorial overview of what Europe looked like in the 16th century, especially the early 16th century. Here you have the Ottoman Empire, not to be confused with the, um, the Mongol uh, empire, but this this is the Ottoman Empire, which came then a couple of hundred years after the Mongols ruled throughout China and uh, and Asia. So here you have Mongol the Mongol uh, areas, but the Ottoman Empire, and you can see then Constantinople is right here, and that will be a factor that we speak about in a moment. Here is the Holy Roman Empire, and you can see then that the different uh, duchies, the different kingdoms in Germany and in Scandinavia are all quite present. And the Holy Roman Empire takes up the most of the, uh, the body of Europe and into Scandinavia. Uh, of course, London and England were also Roman at the time. And I forget how that works with the formation of the Holy Roman Empire, but it's of not great consequence. It gives you a good picture, though, that the Holy Roman Empire was a superpower that was present throughout the most of the body of Europe. And the other determining factor that we will consider as we consider the history of the Reformation is, in fact, the Ottoman Empire to the south. These two, perhaps, are the superpowers that have the greatest bearing on what happened at the Reformation. So we're going to go back uh, to 1436... Now, 1436 was when the Gutenberg press was invented. This is an important factor that was uh, a, a linchpin of the Reformation. The fact that Luther was able to get his, his work and his pamphlets, his tracts, out into the public so very quickly by having them printed in succession in great number ensured that he wasn't knocked off uh, immediately. Of course, there were people that went before him Puss, the most famous, who was burned at the stake. And that was because the influence that he had, as bold as he was and as right as he was in addressing the errors of the papists, he was put to death because his influence did not get out quick enough and yet God was faithful at the time of the 16th, the 15th, 16th century to ensure that his word was disseminated very quickly. And do you see a parallel with our time now? post-World War II, as global communications became a reality. In fact, Australia is a bit of an anomaly when you think about it, that here at the bottom of the world, in what is, in fact, an Asian area, we have this uh, established colonial country that is in communication with the rest of the world. But we don't, we're not naturally from this area. We're, we are an anomaly, really. Uh, and the move from Europe into Australia is... Uh, quite a very interesting phenomenon in world history to come so far and to build this kind of Western society so far away from the centre of the early beginnings of Western society is, uh, is very interesting. But that's all thanks to the ability to travel great distances in short times and even shipping uh, 
was a short period of time to travel compared to what life would have been like four or five hundred years ago. Of course, in post-World War II, as we developed global communications, information is disseminated very quickly, and we now even are able to speak on Skype instantly with people all over the world. It's phenomenal. I pinch myself when I speak to people in Norway and uh, America and Holland, and I, I think this is just this is marvellous to be able to communicate on this level. So you have a, a correlation there that the change of ways of communicating is very prevalent uh, in our time as it was at the time of the Reformation. So let's then move into 1453. So you'll notice that we're a full uh, 670... Work out your maths, lad. 64 years. 64 years before uh, 1517. 64 years before Luther pinned the 95 Theses on the door of the Castle Church of Wittenberg. Here you have the Ottoman Empire taking Constantinople. And that's of enormous significance. It's of enormous significance because the Holy Roman Empire, with its rule throughout Europe, for them, Constantinople was a huge symbol of power. Constantinople was Rome's move into the east. Constantine, of course, was the first emperor emperor to unite the kingdoms of left and right. You could say that he is the early inception of some kind of papal office that is settled after the Reformation in the form that we have it today. For Constantinople to be taken not by heterodox people, not by heretical people, but in fact by apostates, by pagans, by the Turk, to take that place was a huge undermining of the Holy Roman Empire and a huge undermining then of whatever authority they claimed to have, either spiritual or temporal, because here you had a superpower that could physically take them with a false god that is not even the Trinitarian God uh, in whose name they did this and then renamed, of course, Constantinople, Istanbul, which is now in modern-day Turkey. So really, the inception of the Reformation is right back there before Luther is even on the scene. Let's skip forward then with that background to 1505. So Luther was born in Eisleben. It was his father's intention that he studied law. Now in the old faculties of Europe, there were three uh, faculties that were of, of the most importance. Medicine, law and theology. But law to the average commoner was the way to be making your money. And uh, let's face it, law is a good way to make money these days too. Good way to control the church too. Um, pardon me. <laughs> but uh, Luther then was in a thunderstorm in 1505. He'd already, already had an idea that he preferred theology, but it was in the midst of a thunderstorm where he was nearly struck by lightning that he prayed to the Lord, Lord, if you spare my life here, then I will go and I will become a monk. Notice he doesn't say, I'll go and become a, a, a priest immediately, but he'll become a monk. So he would cloister himself. And this is important to know that how the society was structured in Europe, to cloister yourself was to do a greater work than the rest of people, the rest of the people. To be a monk meant that you were more holy, that you had given your life over to God, that you were working for him and him alone. So you would take vows of poverty and chastity and you'd go and cloister yourself away and you would serve God, as if he needs serving, as our Lord says, don't you know that I own the, the cattle on a thousand hilltops? It's, uh, it's mine, I created it. What are you going to give me that I don't already have? 
But this was the understanding, that to go into a holy order made you better and more holy and more pious than other people. And so Luther's highest ideals then could only be represented before the Father by saying, look, I will go and join a holy order and give my life over to you. So he did. Uh, he, uh, he went off to become a monk. And, uh, of course, this, this then is the beginning of his awakening as he studies and as he learns and as he begins to engage with the scriptures in the original language, he comes to see a picture that is very, very different to what he was taught. And make no mistake, the scriptures were not in the vernacular. Our kids did not hear stories of David and Goliath. They were not able to pick up a Bible. My, my eight-year-old daughter has got her Bible with her. They didn't have that. They did not know God's word. The average person could only go on what was decreed from the pulpit and from the mouth of the Pope. He claimed divine authority. In fact, the tradition of the Pope and his word was equal to Scripture. You see a parallel in our society today. As our biblical, uh, our, our nous with the Scriptures, as people become less and less literate in the Holy Scriptures, in the Word of God itself, then people lean on what comes from the mouth of men. And often it's made up, and I'm sure Pastor Roseborough is going to speak about that when he addresses the NAR, but you can see a group of little popes developing all across our society as biblical literacy goes the way of the buffalo into oblivion. Luther engaged with the Scriptures, of course, and it is by the Scriptures that God speaks. You want to hear God, with your, uh, you want to hear God out loud? Read your Bible out loud. Or go to divine worship. Hear it read. This is how you hear God's word. As Luther began to study then, his eyes was, were opened, opened by the Spirit, called into truth, not by himself, not by his own heart, not by any decision of his own, but by the Spirit working through the means that he had provided, the means that he provided from the very beginning of the inception of Christ's church. As Jesus says in John chapter 5, uh, let's, let's begin at 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his... John chapter 6, that's my problem. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life, gives life to whom he will. Notice who is the actor in giving life. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. And what will his judgment be for the baptized? Justified. Whoever does not honour the Son does not honour the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, and this is the central text of what I was trying to get at. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so has he granted the Son also to have life in himself. He has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. 
Notice that it is in the Word that we hear God's voice. It's in the Word that He comes to us to create faith and it's this same Word then that enlightened Luther and called him into the true faith out of the traditions of man that had dominated him for so long, dominated him so deeply in in fact that he would beat himself for his own sin in order to try and make himself righteous before the Father. Not realising all along, of course, that righteousness is not obtainable by man, but we have a righteousness that is not our own, a righteousness that is in fact Christ's, that is put on us. And we will come into full righteousness only in the eschaton when Christ returns to judge the living and the dead. Let's go to some uh, incidentals. Uh, During this time frame, there are amazing things going on in Europe. You may not realise that, in fact, the, um, the Sistine Chapel, the painting of the Sistine Chapel was completed in 1512. So five years before Luther... The, the Sistine Chapel was born. Of course, at this very same time, um, the statue of David is being created. Uh, the contemporaries of Luther are quite of, of the Reformation are quite phenomenal. William Tyndale, of course, in 1525, visits Luther after Luther has completed his translation of the New Testament, and it is by Luther's influence and by Luther's translation that Tyndale is able to take the, uh, the translation that Luther has made and in fact start to begin to print the scriptures in English. Uh, so you see how it all begins right back there in Wittenberg. So at 1511 then, Luther having been cloistered, then is sent to Wittenberg to begin lecturing and most poignantly in 1515 two things very important happens. Luther begins his lectures in Romans and I would think this is the point where he really began to see what was what. And also in 1515, Arabian coffee began to be able to be available in Europe. (laughs) So you can see how he was able to uh, write so much so late. (laughs) Perhaps that's very speculative, very speculative. But interesting nonetheless. All right, we're going to pause Pastor Klein's lecture right there, pay some bills if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith. You can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there at Pirate Christian. Facebook, uh, Facebook.com forward slash Pirate Christian. When we return, we're going to hear the balance of today's uh, first opening lecture at the PCR Australia conference titled, Here I Stood. Pastor Joel Klein, stay tuned, don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> it's Marty Python's Flying Circus Church.
Welcome to Build-A-God. How can I help you? Hello. I received a Build-A-God certificate for my birthday, so I'm here to build my own deity. Oh, this has got to be so exciting for you. Oh, it really is. Okay, let's get started. The first thing we have to do is determine whether your god is male, female, or unisex. Men are pigs anyway. She has to be female. Great choice. Now we have to select some of the attributes of your goddess. What do you provide? Do you want her to be kind, loving, compassionate, just, angry, righteous, wrathful? The goddess I believe in would only be loving and kind. Perfect. Now, is there any kind of sin that needs tending to by your goddess? Sin? You know, things like lying, cheating, stealing, murder, homosexuality. Well, I definitely want my goddess to be gay-affirming, and sin itself just feels so negative. I'm a good person, and I think my goddess will think everyone else is too. Oh, wonderful! Your goddess is coming along beautifully! Now we have to get to the difficult questions. Does your goddess offer an afterlife? Yes! My goddess would let everyone go to heaven. Except for Hitler, Genghis Khan, and good-for-nothing ex-boyfriend. Oh, excellent! Excellent! Now for the final step. You have to name your goddess. Hmm... I think I'm going to name her Jesus. Oh, wonderful! That's what everyone names their god. This is Dr. Curtis Lyons. I am the presiding pastor of the American Association of Lutheran Churches. If you are seeking a church that believes that the Holy Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God and accepts the Lutheran confessions because they are the right interpretation of Holy Scripture, I hope that you will take a look at the AALC. Also, if you are considering a vocation as a Lutheran pastor, Our seminary has a residency program and a program available online. This is Curtis Lyons inviting you to take a look at the AALC. Check us out at taalc.org or on Facebook at the American Association of Lutheran Churches. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. We're back. 
Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that the uh, Reformation was an important thing and that people have departed from it back into the same errors that Rome made. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us. It is a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you get to pick your rank in our crew by, well, choosing the monthly amount that you will give to help support the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Uh, The lowest rank in our crew is Powder Monkey, and that's $9.95 a month. After that, Gunner's Mate at $24.95 a month, Master Gunner at $49.95 a month, and Quartermaster at $99.95 a month. This is a great way to support us. Of course, if you'd like to make a one-time contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, here is the balance of the first lecture from the PCR Australia Conference, Pastor Joel Klein, as he talks about the topic of Here I Stood. Here we go. So Luther begins his lectures in Romans. And it's in Romans chapter 1. He didn't get very far before he started to realize what was what. And that was the text we read today. At the, at the very beginning, I read from Romans chapter 1. This is the pivotal text. For Luther, it was his pivotal text. And it's, it's verse 17. Let's consider that now. For in it... The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. It was not faith that Luther was living by until he came to this realization. It was in fact works. It was unrighteousness that he was working from. He was trying to make chicken salad out of chicken droppings, as it were. Consider that well. You can't make chicken salad out of chicken excrement. It doesn't work. You can't make righteous what is unrighteous by using more unrighteousness. For even our best works are tainted by sin. And this is why Luther would beat himself so severely, perhaps not even being able to recognize why he was doing it, but innately because the Spirit reveals by his word. Innately he knew that by his own righteousness he would never attain favor with the Father. And it wouldn't matter how hard he beat himself, he was never going to add up to what is needed to be righteous in in the sight of the Father by his own efforts. So it is this statement, from faith for faith, revealed, not made by the human being. Romans chapter 1, his very early lectures, opens his eyes to this truth. How often then has this been put down in our culture? How often is this very point missed? That everything we have is a gift. And not just faith, mind you. While that is the greatest gift, that we would have peace with the Father, that we would be restored, that we would have an alien righteousness, not our own, that we would have access 
to the fullness of God through the Son, that we would be righteous in His sight, we would face a judgment of not guilty. This also is God's gift and the greatest gift to fall in humanity. But for all humanity, the very earth is His gift. He has created and He sustains everything. Everything that exists, exists at His whim. It exists because He created it. It continues to exist because He sustains it. It continues to be given as a gift to us, this earth and everything in it, because God allows it to continue. It is His work through and through. Faith then accepts that it is God's work. Faith then receives from God an alien righteousness, receives the righteousness of Christ and is able to then recognize what God has given. Without faith, while this gift would still be from God, while we would still enjoy the gifts of God, while we would still perhaps have our cars and our food and everything provided for us that we need from God's own hand in His own providence, we would not recognize the giver, much less the gift. And we'll go into that further tomorrow. But it is in Him then that all things exist. <coughs> so, now... He, Luther, of course, begins his lectures in Romans. Let's go back to the text. I'm going on a rant. 1515. <laughs> I'm a preacher. What am I going to do? Preach. <laughs> uh, 1515, Luther begins his lectures in Romans, and importantly, coffee comes to Europe. 1517. Pope Leo begins to grant indulgences at a cost so that he can rebuild St. Peter's Basilica. Have you seen the front page of The Australian today? Yeah. You know what office uh, Cardinal Pell holds? Holds the money bag. <laughs> holds the money bag. He collects the cash. You know what Pope Francis has been doing? Providing indulgences. Again, 100-year indulgences for the Fatima, back in 2012, I believe. There's nothing new under the sun, is there? There is nothing new. Everything happens as it has happened before, but it's important for us to recognize so that we are able to call to account those who would let it continue or those who would participate in it willingly. So, 1517, the indulgences begin to be put out there. Tetzel gets around with his money bag. When a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs, you might have heard that saying before. Uh, People are told that they can get their loved ones out of hell by giving some money to the church. Uh, no, it doesn't work like that. We know that. Everything is a gift from God. No amount of money is going to buy anyone's soul. Only the blood of Christ on the cross buys anyone's soul. That is the perfect price necessary. So this is when Luther pins his 95 Theses to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg. Now, I'm a bit of, a, I'm a bit of an odd duck when it comes to 1517. So those uh, good, solid Lutherans celebrating the 500th anniversary, um, just shoot me after. I kind of see 1517 as like celebrating your birthday on your conception date. <laughs> Somehow you go to mum and dad and say, well, what day were you married and what month was I born? And I reckon we'll count back nine months and that's when I'll celebrate my birthday. Well, this was a pivotal point. This really got the ball rolling. It was the conception 
of the Reformation, but it wasn't until 1580 that we really should be celebrating. But why not have both? Let's let's do both, because most of us aren't going to get to uh, 2080 to celebrate the Book of Concord 1580, are we? We could make it to 30 for the Augsburg Confession, but it is 1517. This begins the Reformation. Uh, The 95 Theses goes on the door of the Castle Church at Wittenberg, Uh, 1518, Philip Melanchthon, who is 14 years Luther's junior, comes also to Wittenberg University to teach. Uh, The Heidelberg Disputation begins. Uh, The process against Luther begins in Rome. Uh, Luther in 1518, of course, uh, then appears before Cardinal Cajetan in in Augsburg, pardon me, and uh, Luther appeals to the General Council and refuses in the first instance to recant the 95 Theses. Later, of course, he would refine much of the 95 Theses and much of it is not in our uh, doctrine and certainly is not dogma. But uh, it it was the beginning. So, Frederick the Wise refuses to to surrender Luther uh, and Leo, then Pope Leo, issues a papal bull uh, giving Luther 60 days to recant or be excommunicated. This is another important point. You can imagine for the reformer what kind of fear fills your mind. If he didn't have such trust in Christ and his word, if God in fact did not sustain him from outside himself, if this was by his own will, at this point I'm sure, and I could say for myself under this kind of persecution of myself, I would fail. I would fail utterly because he had been indoctrinated from birth to believe that when the Pope Pope issues a decree, he is issuing a decree that is binding on all Christendom. So to excommunicate Luther in this way, to put a papal bull against him, everything that he had been taught from birth to this point, the cornerstone of his understanding of who God is, who God is against him rather than for him, that his excommunication would in fact, by the Pope, have him condemned to hell for all eternity. That's truly something to fear. You can see the grace of Christ working to overcome such solid indoctrination, such devilish indoctrination, in fact, that we would rely on our own works. It's beyond, (laughs) I can't even understand as a sinful human being in Christ's church how we could depend on ourselves because uh, there's not a chance for any one of us. So uh, the papal bull then must have been an enormous thing of fear and yet Luther this is 1520, pardon me, two years later, the papal bull, Luther burns it and a copy of canon law. Burns it. Throws it in the fire. There's nuts to that. You cannot cow me. And uh, that's fitting, isn't it, with Scripture? Do not fear the one who can destroy your body, but fear the one who can destroy body and soul in hell. And who is that? That's God. With this irreverent fear, Luther puts the work of man to the torch and engages in the work of Christ for him. Now, I had a very interesting story related to me last night, and I, I don't know how you plan on celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, but I heard of a small country town where the Lutheran church was over the road from the Catholic church, and so come October 31, a group of nefarious Lutherans went out into the paddock and got a whole pile of dung, put it on the uh, steps of the Catholic Church and said, 
the papal bull passed by. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, you get the feeling that's about how much uh, Luther put stock in that papal bull. So uh, he burned the papal bull. Let's, we're going to skip through because we're going to get to some of the, uh, the doctrinal issues. Uh, 1521, he is actually finally excommunicated by papal bull uh, on January the 3rd. It is then the Diet of Worms uh, comes about in April uh, of 20, 1521, pardon me. And uh, following that then the Edict of Worms uh, declares... Luther to be a public outlaw and criminal, making it illegal for anybody to have Luther's books in their possession. I've got three <laughs> in my possession. It's good. You get an electronic copy too if you'd like one. <laughs> uh, so uh, it's at this time then Frederick the Wise hides Luther at the Wartburg. Now, how many of you heard of the, the Wartburg? Only a couple? So the Wartburg uh, is a castle up on the hill. Uh, Luther was taken away uh, by his supporters, uh, and Frederick the Wise was certainly a supporter of his. He was squirreled away uh, so that the Pope and his allies couldn't get to him and kill him because his life was actually in danger. He could have been hijacked on the road and killed on the spot, and someone probably would have had an extension on their house and a new chariot to ride around in for the work. Uh, that's the uh, the situation that he faced. His life was in very serious danger. Uh, God uh, raised for, for Luther at that time, Frederick the Wise, to hide him in the Wartburg for 11 months. And it's here that God the Spirit works through Luther, through his pen. To give to you, and now you are the legacy of this work, the translation of the New Testament into German, uh, which was completed in 1522, It was in 1525, then Tyndale comes to Luther and then prints the English New Testament. This is the beginning then of the freeing of the church to receive from God his holy word and his gifts to be able to come to him and to hear him in our own tongues. Here Pentecost is restored as it were, taken out of the Latin only spoken by priests and not understood by the people and given into the vernacular so that God would be heard and we would marvel that we would hear the testimony of his good works in all of our languages. What a phenomenal gift that God gave through Luther at this time. What a phenomenal gift we have. Don't underestimate how great it is, how faithful God is to give to you his word. Don't underestimate how important This is how many people died for it and still die for it. How more people are martyred in our time as they would attempt to martyr Luther for this God's word. Don't take it for granted. It is a source of doctrine, of faith. It is a source of life. It is a source of Christ for you and all his gifts. In fact, it's the only source. (laughs) Nothing comes from the ether. Nothing comes from the heart of man. Nothing comes from within or from without but by the word of God. What a wonderful treasure to have in your hands, the very word of God. So hold on to this and then get a copy of this. (laughs) This explains it as best that humans can. So let's skip through. In 1529, uh, out of the Wartburg then, uh, Luther begins and finally finishes his large and small catechisms. If you want to have an overview of the Christian faith and a good belly laugh, 
read the large catechism of Luther. Uh, if you don't have one, bookofconcord.org, it's free. Also on there you'll have, uh, you can find Friedrich Bente's uh, Historical Introductions to the Lutheran Confessions, which is a wonderful book um, that you should be willing to pay for, but it's also free on bookofconcord.org. Read the large catechism where uh, Luther describes those who go about saying they're doing churchly work without even engaging with God's word as pigs and dogs at troughs. And uh, that appeals to both my German and Irish sides. <laughs> so, uh, large and small catechism, wonderful thing. Uh, read your large catechism. Read your small catechism daily. Read your large catechism at least once a year uh, if you are interested. And I will grant you an indulgence of five minutes of my time to talk about it. But I won't get you out of hell. <laughs> my indulgence. Word of God will. Um, in 1530, the Augsburg Confession is uh, then presented and is signed on to by the princes. Now, this is where we're going to go to our second map. Augsburg, and, and you'll see further down the track, how Augsburg is important, how it's central, in fact. So I'm going to go over to this map again. So the Augsburg Confession, I, I never had this clear in my mind until I actually engaged with this map and, and uh, through my seminary studies. I just thought the Augsburg Confession was a name, you know, perhaps it's the group of Augsburgians or something like that. But Augsburg is actually a very central uh, area for all that goes on during the Reformation. You see, the, it's all colour-coded. So the Lutheran uh, influence and the Lu- evangelical Lutheran areas are all up here and you can see... Um, Here's Wittenberg, Brandenburg, Magdeburg, Hamburg, Hanover, Bremen, so on and so forth. These are the names that you're going to hear associated with Lutherans uh, all the time. Wittenberg, of course, is where Luther was, uh, along with Melanchthon and uh, uh, Karlstadt and others uh, in that central teaching location. And you can see then how, as the centre of the Lutheran teaching, it spread out, an explosion like a paintball on the screen, uh, out into these other areas. Down here is Augsburg. Now, Zwingli is in Zurich, and you see that's just near Augsburg. Augsburg. Uh, here over in, in France and into these other areas where um, the Holy Roman Empire continued to hold sway throughout the Reformation, Augsburg remains central. And it seems to be through history, that, uh, well, through this period of history, that Augsburg is the place where people go to do theology. This is like uh, Adelaide, <laughs> if you'd like. So the Augsburg Confession is presented at Augsburg in 1530. When we go to some further slides as we look at the other groups that came out of the Reformation, those radical reformers, you're going to see that they're all centred around Augsburg as well. Um, Now, this is really the defining moment. The Augsburg Confession uh, outlines the basic teachings of the Christian church, outlines them unequivocally, perfectly, in fact. And and the Article 4, the Article on Justification, then becomes for the reformers the article on which the church stands or falls. And that is that article of justification which you heard uh, alluded to in our Romans text, but spoken quite clearly by Christ in our John text, that he is the actor for our faith, that we are justified not on the basis of our works, not on the basis of our piety, not on the basis of our good devotional habits, though these are a bulwark against us rejecting the faith once delivered to the saints. These do not gain us heaven but only being justified, only having 
our price paid for by the blood of Christ, that we justified. And so the Augsburg Confession is that pivotal moment in which the church begins to be truly reformed. The ball started rolling in 1517 here as groups of people come together to subscribe to this confession of faith. Did the Reformation really take hold in Europe? Things escalated very quickly then. 1530, the presentation of the Augsburg Confession. 1534, Henry VIII declares himself to be the head of the Church of England. And here you start to see the cracks. And no offence to our, our Anglican brothers, whatever pony you've got to ride, ride it. But, uh, Henry VIII uh, uses the Reformation for his own ends. And this is what human beings do. What is essentially good is going to be used to do what we want when we depend on ourselves. So Henry, in order to have eight wives, how many wives? Six, Six thank you. Uh, six wives, uh, declares himself to be the head of the church. <laughs> he can make up his own rules. Uh, 1536, Calvin completes his institutes. And in 1536, Norway, okay, not, not a, a, con- a range of congregations in the north of Norway and not, not a group of islands in the fjords of Norway, but the entire nation of Norway subscribes to the Augsburg Confession, united by a confession of faith that is clearly of the scripture and of Christ. 1537 then, as things escalate, from the fear-driven uh, work of the, of the papists, from the papal bull going out, and the excommunication, the condemnation of eternal hell uh, given over to Luther, now in 1537 Melanchthon writes the tractate and clearly states that the Pope is in fact the office of the Antichrist. And just as the papal bull has not been rescinded against Luther, nor has the tractate been taken from the Book of Concord. I will make that very clear, that this papal authority to speak on behalf of Christ with no recognition of his word and even in defiance of it, issuing even indulgences, certainly marks of the office of Antichrist. And there I have nailed the final nail in my coffin. (laughs) 1538, small called articles are written by Martin Luther. I recommend you read those also. They are very good. And they're easy to read and quite short. You can read the, a good section of the small called articles when you're in that small chamber where the kids can't get through the door. Uh, excellent reading. Much better than the newspaper. Uh, another diet at Spire appears to grant major concessions to the Lutherans in 1544 as the Catholics begin to rescind their attacks because that Ottoman Empire finds itself not just in Constantinople but now even heading towards the gates of Vienna and later there would be a siege at Vienna. Now, Sweden in 1544, as Norway did also, begins to declare, or actually declares Lutheranism to be a state religion. Now, 1546, uh, 1545 to 1563 is the Council of Trent. This establishes the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church against the uh, developing Reformation uh, and is the source now of what we see as the Roman Catholic Church. Because before this, we didn't have the Roman Catholic Church. We just had what was called the Church, and it was the Holy Roman Empire. Uh, Roman Catholics then now split themselves off, established their dogma and doctrine, compiled it just as the Lutherans did with the Book of Concord and as Calvin did with his institutes and declared themselves to be 
the Roman Catholic Church. So the idea that we protested and that we decided to make ourselves another church is in fact wrong. Uh, We reformed what was there, like an army. You know, when you go into battle and you fall back and reform, this is what we're doing. This is what we've always been doing, in fact. Semper reformando, we're always reforming. That doesn't mean we're always protesting and looking for something new and developing and, and rolling on and building on uh, on what has gone before. No, this means we fall back to the source of sound doctrine and right teaching. We fall back constantly and realign our armies, re- get our lines back in order, re-establish our proper teaching and our orthodoxy and then go out again into battle. And then as the lines fall apart, as the attacks pull us apart and undermine Christ's church, then we fall back and we reform. This is what reforming is, to go back to find the centre of orthodoxy and the strongest place in which to stand to go out from. So 1546, Luther dies. Uh, By 1555 then, the Catholics have said, well, you blokes can just get on with it where you are. 1555, the Peace of Augsburg, given uh, not just to Lutherans but also to all the nutbars as well. Uh, And I don't mean, um, I mean anti-Trinitarians and... uh, (laughs) others. So, um, Colloquy of Worm, Worms, uh, 1557, the Catholics try in vain to bring the Lutherans back home. Apparently they succeeded with the LWF and the Joint Declaration on the Doctrine of Justification in which Rome gave nothing and the LWF gave lots. Uh, that colloquy was successful, but it really wasn't. Chemnitz and Andre begin to work to unite Lutheran territories and cities in 1568. And here is the second really significant date in the Reformation as we head towards 1580. If 1517 was the beginning, then this is the first reform, fall back to the line to go forward again as Andre and Chemnitz begin their work in 1568. Very important to recognise these men and they in fact uh, finished by writing the uh, formula of Concord and compiling the Book of Concord with the Augsburg Confession, Apology, Small Court Articles, Large and Small Catechism, so on and so forth, the body of doctrine that we subscribe to as Lutherans, not in part but in its entirety because it explains Scripture, not because it's superior but because it explains. Uh, They are the ones that finally formulated this. So this is um, with that imagery of falling back and reforming your lines. That begins in uh, 1568 as Chemnitz and Andre begin to uh, do their work. So in 1571 then, the 39 Articles are completed. I can't say that I've even read the 39 Articles. I must get to that one day. Um, The epitome of the Formula of Concord is finished in 1576. The Solid Declaration of the Formula of Concord is finished in 1577. Now, that's what the slides that we're going to go on to next. Uh, The Book of Concord is finished in 1580. And so that's when... Uh, that we have our body of doctrine. That's what we subscribe to. It's complete and we don't change or alter our understanding from that because we don't change and alter the scriptures and uh, the confessions only continue and over again to repeat the scriptures in different ways. It's like a big, long Bible study and uh, all Christians really, uh, in my opinion, not just my opinion, but if you want a good, healthy Bible study... You can't go wrong with all the parts of the Book of Concord, one by one. 
you're going to have a lifetime of Bible studies there. I teach the large catechism exclusively in the parish and uh, it, it never gets old, never, ever gets old. I'm delighted to say that one of my congregations is now into the formula, so that's nice as well. Sects uh, post-Luther. So the Anabaptists, um, the wicked witch of the West, uh, wasn't an Anabaptist because she would have melted. Um, uh, Herbmeyer was one of the significant Anabaptists who studied under Eck. Uh, in 1525, he t- came into his ascendancy. This is uh, taken primarily from Article 12. Other sects that did not subscribe to the Augsburg Confession in the, Apo- in the Formula of Concord. Uh, the Epitome and Solid Declaration cover the same topics. The Epitome is the easy read and the Solid Declaration is the long read. You know, It's like a comic book novel. <laughs> you know, one of them is the quick overview and one of them is in-depth. So Hubmeyer studied under Eck and he began this, uh, this Anabaptist movement. Notice that it is here that Anabaptism started. The church has always baptised infants. Always, from day dot. Suffer the little children to come to me, said our Lord. That's uh, even from the King James, if you like. We, the church, we, the church, have always baptised infants, but it's here in 1525 that humanity, with its reason, decides to take something that is good, a restoration of God's word in the presence of God's people, and use it and abuse it. And uh, you can go on to say, look, this is not the work of man, uh, though man would think that they are so high and mighty as to rationalise God's word, but it is an undermining of God's word, and there is only one enemy of Christ's church. So, Infant baptism is declared by Hubmeyer to be an abominable idolatry that Christ would adopt you as his child and wash you and give you his righteousness though you are undeserving. This is an abominable idolatry that God would do what God would do and man would have no say. I would believe that's the opposite of idolatry. Uh, Then Eucharist. The Eucharist is not truly Jesus' body and blood uh, which is, of course, nonsense. And it's uh, Luther in the Marburg Colloquy who famously would etch into the, into the tabletop, this is my body, this is my blood. And that's very clear, isn't it? It was morning and it was evening the first day. God spoke and it was created. God breathed into them. All scripture is God breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. When God speaks his word, it does what it says it does and it is what it says it is. God's word is infallible. It cannot be infallible and then have Christ say, well, this is my body, this is my blood, and then we say, oh, well, only represents. No, what Christ says is truth, as Christ himself bears witness. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is truth itself, so his word is truth. Uh, Dasher would continue that work, 1527, uh, his work, Revelation of the True Anabaptists, accepted as a confession at the Augsburg Council of Anabaptists. See Augsburg again, gathered in the central area. Um, 1529, he gets a hymn book and he grabs even some Luther hymns. And uh, Dasher expands on Hubmeyer's work to say that God draws us to himself through the power which is in us. Um, out of the heart comes all kinds of sin. <laughs> there is no power within us by which God could draw us to himself until he places that power within us by the gift of his indwelling Holy Spirit. Um, Hutt, uh, again, another one of these blokes, attended Augsburg Council, 1527. Uh, 
they started to develop this socialistic idea, you know. How can you say you're a true Christian, you didn't give out 25 blankets like the salvos? Well, I'm a true Christian because Christ gave his body for me on the cross, shed his blood, not because I did anything good. Though John Denk regarded as a pope or archbaptist or bishop, 1527 was the leader of the Augsburg Council, and he even went so far as to begin this slippery slope into direct revelation uh, that it's not just in the scriptures, but the voice of God in the heart of man. Oh my goodness, that's not the voice of God. (laughs) Uh, Whoever imagines to obtain grace through baptism or by the breaking of bread is given to superstition. What a nonsense. Um, pardon me. Swankfelders. So I'm running out of time, aren't I, Pastor? Yeah, okay. I just want to skip through and you can see that all of these, uh, it is the, the, the uh, following Luther's death that the extremes of humanity takes over in the Reformation and starts to formulate out of their own hearts, their own ideals that are not in keeping with scripture, pattern of sound doctrine, or Christ's word himself. Uh, in closing, I'd like to read a hymn that I sung quite boisterously yesterday. Grace by faith alone, through Christ alone, by the Spirit alone, through his word alone. This is how Christ has given his church to live. 324 in the Australian Lutheran hymnal. Salvation under us has come by God's free grace and favour. Good works cannot avert our doom. They help and save us never. In faith we look to Christ alone who did for all the world atone. He is our one Redeemer. What God doth in his law demand, no man to him can render. Before this judge all all guilty stand, condemned in is each offender. The law demands a perfect heart, defiled were we in every part. And lost is our condition. The law of God fulfilled must be, else were we lost forever. The Father sent his Son that he from doom might us deliver. For us the law he has fulfilled, the Father's anger he has stilled. The curse is gone forever. Since Christ has full atonement made and brought to us salvation, the contrite heart may now be glad and build on this foundation. Thy grace alone, dear Lord, we plead. Thy death now is our life indeed for thou hast paid our ransom. Thank you, and God bless. So what'd you think? I know it was a little technical, a little historical, but really important foundation that we'll build on in the next lectures that you'll hear uh, as we play them out here at Fighting for the Faith. So what'd you think? If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you could subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>